Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be in the Lord's house, sitting under the authority of his word as we gather as his people. We're thankful for the opportunity that we have. Uh, just a reminder that uh, I'd ask you to turn your cell phones to silent or off during this time. As we're live streaming, we don't want any interruptions. Those of you joining us online, good morning. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for making good use of technology to be with us this morning as we study God's Word. I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 14 as we prepare to study God's Word this morning. Uh, there's an introduction I wanted to make this morning, but I realize I'm probably late in doing that. Um, we started having a summer intern. Has he already taken off? He's in Sunday school. Okay. Well, we have a young man that has started as our summer intern this summer. His name is Eli Clardy. He's already started, and he's working with Pastor Brian and the youth ministry and, and student ministry, and he'll be working some with me just as we have a chance to mentor him over the summer. He's a young man that has aspirations of going into the ministry, and so we want to ha have the opportunity as a church, as a church staff, to just help him discern that call and to get some life experience and serving us this summer and the student ministries and youth ministry and with the church staff. And so uh, I guess he's already gone off to teach Sunday school, but you'll see him hanging around with Pastor Brian, and hopefully you get a chance to say hello to him very soon. Eli Clardy is his name. Well, the story is told of what happened on one stormy night, one summer evening when a severe thunderstorm was breaking out as a mother was trying to tuck her young son into bed. She was about to turn the light off, when he asked in a trembling voice, Mommy, will you stay me, with me all night? And smiling, his mother gave him a warm, reassuring hug, a kiss on the forehead, and said, I can't, dear, I have to sleep in Daddy's room. And a long silence followed, and at last it was broken by a shaking, quivering voice that said, The big sissy. <laughs> we all have to face fears in life, and we have to know how to deal with them. And while we might find some humor in the normal fears of childhood, we also understand the need of wanting a safe person to be with us as we face those fears. And as we move along in years in life, the fact of living in a sinful and fallen world means that there are real things to fear, and the need to have a sure and safe place to go when the storms of life blow over us. Where we are at in the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus is in the process of discipling and training a group of men who will take over the ministry when he returns back to the Father. And in this process of discipleship, he is teaching the 12 men who he really is, what he has come to do, and what service to the Father looks like. Now, in a section that we began at the end of chapter 13, and we'll continue over several chapters, Jesus confronts and will confront many challenges to his ministry and see them as teaching tools for this band of loyal followers that he has who have come to him for eternal life, whom he has called and set apart to be spiritual leaders in the church that he is forming. Well, today we come to a passage that is among the most well-known in the Gospels. Last week, after we saw Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fish, showing that indeed he is the bread of life, Jesus in our passage today will show that he has the power over nature as he walks on water and displays his control over creation, that he has control over the challenges of life. 
So I encourage you that though this is a well-known story, do not let its familiarity keep you from learning the lessons that God has placed in his word. He's given to each of these passages, each of these stories to help us to better understand who he is, better understand his word, better understand the true nature of who he is as the savior and redeemer of mankind. And so as we prepare to go study this passage this morning, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word as we read and as he is speaking to us as we read Matthew 14, verses 22 to 23. And the Holy Word of God, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, says immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, and the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night... He came to them, walking on the seas. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, in the word that you've given us this morning, you're showing us a great picture of who your son is as the ruler of the seas and the Lord of all nature. And I pray that as we look at this word in greater detail, it would be the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds to cause us to understand and to see and to hear so that we would know who you are in a greater way, what your plan and purposes are for us, but also how to walk in faith in this one who bids us come and walk with him. So Father, would you turn our eyes to your word and then cause our eyes to be turned to the Lord Jesus Christ that we might see him in a greater way as we commit this time into your care in Jesus' name. As you follow along in your sermon outline, we come to our first major point this morning, which is go away, the calm before the storm. Verse 22 begins our reading by saying, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And notice the key word, immediately. This happened right after the feeding of the 5,000 and the collection of the 12 baskets. And as we talked last week, this tremendous lesson of discipleship of who is this one who can give us more in the end than what we had in the beginning, who is the bread of life, who can feed us, who is indeed the one that is the manna that has come down from heaven. Well, Jesus seems to be in a hurry to get the disciples out of there, and so we are told that he made them get into the boat. In fact, the word is anagazo, which means to compel. It means to force. He's encouraging them, get into the boat and get out of here. 
And so that might cause us to ask the question, why? Well, we don't find the direct answer here in Matthew 14, but we do as we compare the parallel account in John 6. As the scriptures work together in complementary fashion, as we get to John 6, we read, when the people saw the sign that he had done, this is when the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And the next verse says he made them get into the boat. So the people have a wrong understanding of what Jesus has just done. They did in their tradition, as you remember from last week. They believed that the Messiah, when he came, would bring back the manna, that it would happen in springtime. And here the events of Matthew 14 happened just as they expected, but more importantly, just as the scriptures predicted. But they have a wrong impression. And that brings us to our first sub-point. Jesus is a king, but not on their terms. He has a king. He has a kingdom, but not the kind for which they were looking. They had eaten of the bread, and they had took this as a sign that their liberator was here, that the Messiah had come. And it was now time for them to rise up and overthrow their Roman oppressors. We saw a few chapters ago that the disciples that were growing in their understanding of Jesus, but we also said at that time, but just wait, there'll be signs that they need to keep on learning. They need to keep on growing. They do not yet have full understanding. Jesus knows that, and so he hustles them out of there. He wanted them to go in a different direction. He didn't want them to be swept up in the emotion of the crowds to try to make Jesus king before it was time. Jesus knew that ultimately his aims were spiritual, creating a spiritual movement that would wash over the nations. They were not, in the immediate context, political. You recall that earlier in chapter 4, the devil himself had tempted Jesus to take the shortcut to power. Just simply bow down and worship me, and then you will be given the kingdoms of the world, for it's my authority to give them. And Jesus saw through that ruse and that deception he knew that the power and authority would only come to him from the Father and would only come after he had ascended to heaven, after going to the cross and rising from the dead, receiving the nations as an inheritance over which he will one day rule them all with a rod of iron. He knew that there could be no crown without there first being a cross. And here the people tempt Jesus again to become a king without having to go through the trials and tribulations of dying on a cross. But Jesus knows no cross, no crown. He knew that he must first suffer and die and be buried and rise from the dead and be ascended to heaven. And it's a similar way for we who follow Christ. We want to have our rewards now. We want to have the ruling now. We want to have the authority now. But we've been told that we will go through persecutions and sufferings and difficulties. As the Apostle Paul says in Acts 14, there is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's in a similar manner then, we must go through, as it were, the cross. We must go through the trials and tribulations of this world, faithfully serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we'll receive the crown of righteousness. Well, immediately, the text tells us, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And we said if there were between 15 and 20,000 people, you can imagine that this would have taken some time. Recall that they were, the disciples were in a hurry to feed these people because it was approaching evening. Send them away so they can find places to eat. Well, if it was urgent that they send away to find places to eat, 
It's also urgent that they go away and find places to lodge, as Jesus makes it clear he will not be crowned king at this time, so he needs to get them out of the way. But then again, he was the one that ordered them to sit in groups of 50 and 100, and they did. And so when he dismisses them and says, it's not my time, you need to go on your way, they would leave. And then Jesus can show that not only is he a king, but he is a man of prayer. And after he had dismissed the crowd, we're at the end of verse 22, he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. We don't see this idea as much in the gospel according to Matthew as we do in the other gospels, but Jesus would often go by himself to pray. And notice the two mentions just in these short verses, the fact that Jesus was alone. He needs to seek the fellowship of the Father. He wants to have this quiet time of prayer. Jesus, of course, is the Lord, but Jesus is also a good teacher. He modeled prayer for his disciples. He taught them how to pray. He even gave them words to pray. He knew that he needed to show them what it was to be in fellowship with the Father. He also knew that he was the God-man. Yes, he was truly God and truly man, but as a true man, he needed to spend time with God in prayer. So that leads an obvious question to us. If the perfect God-man, if Jesus, truly man, without sin, needed to spend time in prayer with the Father, how much more do we, who are not sinless, need to spend time in prayer with the Father who created us and who redeemed us and who is sanctifying us to be more into the image of his Son. So we need to grow in our understanding and our practice of prayer, what the Bible says on the subject, what is appropriate, what is inappropriate when it comes to the disciplines of prayer. We're not told why Jesus went into the hills at this time, but the context gives us some clues, I think. Perhaps he's going to resist temptation from the crowds about becoming king before it's time. And just a chapter or two, we find that he's going into his Gentile ministry, so perhaps he's praying for the upcoming ministry to the Gentiles that will eventually cause him to turn towards Jerusalem where he will finish the work of the Messiah as the one who would die, suffer and die, and rise again. Perhaps he's praying for the disciples themselves. We get clues from the text here and also from Mark 6 that he sees that the disciples are struggling out on the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps there's another reason why he went into the hills by himself to pray. But as I was thinking about it this week, I was looking at my own life and I had to ask myself the question, do I have a regular time and place where I pray? Where I get away and I'm alone with God with just my Bible open and I'm just praying and, and presenting to him my needs but also worshiping him for who he is and using the principles of scripture? I'd ask you the same question. Is it part of your schedule? Is it part of your daily life? to have a quiet place where you're alone with the Lord to pray using the scriptures as your guide. My first point this morning is go away, the calm before the storm. Secondly, we see the, question, or the statement, fear not, the calm during the storm. And I pick up at the end of verse 23. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. So Jesus is up on the hills praying while the boat is adrift on the sea. Now normally to cross the Sea of Galilee was a fairly routine and straightforward proposition. It provided a quick way for them to get from one side of the sea to the other. And as we follow the trajectory of Jesus, he's going back and forth across the sea. Normally, it was a nice trip. 
a quick trip. But given the topography surrounding this, the sea, storms could quickly form on the Sea of Galilee. The winds would sweep down from the surrounding hills and rush down through the, galley, the gullies upon the seas, which would immediately become great storms with heavy rain and waves built into a frenzy and the mist beginning to fly. And very quickly the sea would become a dangerous place. So those that were regular boatsmen and fishermen knew to stay off the water whenever a storm was approaching. And indeed, in some ports today on the Sea of Galilee, boats are required to be tethered firmly and people are not allowed on the seas when the weather forecast says that storms are coming. So here we have a boat full of disciples, many of them experienced fishermen who know something about the sea and how to navigate troubled waters, but they are in for a long battle, a long battle, verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So this is where we get to do a little fun as we compare the different accounts in the Gospels that complement to complete the story. The disciples would have been blown at least a mile and a half out into the middle of the sea. Instead of crossing quickly or even making progress toward their destination, they're now floundering out in the middle of the sea in the middle of the storm that is raging all around them. And they were there for hours as they'd been beaten by the waves. They're frightened. They know they're in danger. In fact, one translation of Mark 6 says they were straining at the oars, but they're not making any progress. The more they tried, the worse it got. They're going straight into the winds, the waves, and the mist. They were lost and confused. But according to Mark chapter 6, in all of this, Jesus sees them out on the seas and the winds and the waves. And that's implied in Matthew because he goes up to, to the hills to pray. And it's easy enough, as we said last week, to be able to look over the Sea of Galilee. That's how the people knew where Jesus was heading in our story that we looked at last week. You could look out over the Sea of Galilee. They got in here. They're heading out in that direction. It's only of a couple places they could go. So Jesus could look out and he could see them. And I thought, what an encouragement for us today that the Lord sees us in our trials. We remember that when the storms of life blow over you, when you seem to be getting hit by the waves of life, we remember that Jesus sees you in your trials. Now, there's more to that than meets the eye. He sees them, but Jesus knows he's also the one who has sent them out into the storm. Remember the verse that said he compelled them? He told them to get into the boat to escape the temptation that was on land, but he knows what's coming. And it just might be, my friends, that sometimes we face the storms of life because we are exactly where Jesus wants us to be. We're faithful to him, we're preaching him, we're serving him, we're serving others, we're right where we're supposed to be, and trials and temptations and storms come. Or sometimes it's simply because we obey the Lord that God will bring storms, but he will also be glorified and will use them as he leads us through them. God is good. God is wise. It's a good idea for us to get our theology straight while we're on the land of life, to know who God is, what he does, how he will lead us, how he'll answer our prayers, so that when we get out onto the storms of life and our theology is challenged, we'll know that it is true. What was true on the land is true in the middle of the lake 
when the storms are splashing all around us. My friends, hang on in the storms of life if you belong to Christ. It may seem that they are lasting a long time, and indeed at a certain level they might, but he is in control, he sees you, and then he comes to you. And that text goes on in verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now the Romans, how they divided the periods of time was that between 6 p.m. in the evening until 6 a.m. in the morning, that 12-hour period, they divided into four watches, each of three hours. That's how they fulfilled, you know, soldiers would go on watch for these different set terms. So for four hours, four watches of three hours each, that was the 12 hours of the night. So think about this. We know the disciples got into the boat before sundown. They've been out in the middle of the lake battling the storms, battling the waves and the wind, and Jesus doesn't come to them to the fourth watch in the night. That means it's at least seven hours, could be eight, nine, ten, eleven hours they're out there in the middle of the sea fighting this storm. No wonder they're confused and fearful and weary. But one thing they were not was ignored. During many hours of Many of those hours, Jesus is praying in the mountain. And we can be sure that in part he was praying for them. But even if it doesn't say it clearly here, it says clearly elsewhere that Jesus clearly prays for his people today as their high priest. In places like Romans 8, Hebrews 7, Jesus is praying for us right now at the right hand of the Father. It was one of the things he came to do, according to Isaiah 53, to be the fulfillment, to be our high priest, that he's praying for us. So if we're in the midst of storms and struggles and trials because we have obeyed Jesus, we can know that he is praying on our behalf before the Father, that the Father's plan would be accomplished, that we would be comforted, that we would be strengthened, that we would accomplish that which he has sent us into the storm for. So, my friends, If Jesus is praying for us, should we not also persevere in prayer for ourselves, for our families, for our church, for those that are without Christ? Should this not encourage us if he is praying for us and wants fellowship with us, that he invites us to join him at the right hand of the Father in praying? I think all of us need help, don't we? In growing in our prayer life and understanding that prayer is part of our relationship with God, our communication with God, growing in fellowship and intimacy with Him. Well, they've had a long battle, and then they're going to have a fearful sight, a fearful sight. Now, as already said, in the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea, but when they saw Him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they cry out saying, it's a ghost, and they're crying out in fear. And the word for fear, let's go to the next is, there we go, phantasma. Might get the word phantom. Sometimes it refers to a spirit or a demon or an angel. They don't know what they're seeing. After hours out in the open sea battling the winds and the waves and the mist and the storms and the struggles straining at the oars, and suddenly they see this appearance on the water. They don't know what they see. And these suddenly strong men find out they're really not that strong when they're out of control and they're facing forces that are stronger than they. The disciples are not making any progress. 
straining at the oars, and yet this figure is making progress, coming towards them. And so they're trying hard, and they're not making progress, and this figure just keeps coming towards them. They're tired. They're disoriented. And they had no expectation that they would see Jesus. They were at their worst, fearing the worst. They knew they were in danger. But think about this. They had spent so much time being fearful and worried and overwhelmed that they couldn't see the truth of what was happening right in front of them. And in fact, to paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, they were at their worst, not yet knowing that they were on the verge of being at their best. Because it was in the midst of that storm as they're fighting that the Savior was on the way. Friends, keep on keeping on. Keep on persevering. No matter how difficult, no matter how hard, no matter how dark it may seem, you're always under the watchful eye of the Master. And He can always come and appear and deliver and save. And may we have eyes to see how He is working in our lives, even in the darkest moments of our lives. They had a fearful sight. And then they hear a mighty claim. Now, this is not the first time that these disciples have experienced a storm on the sea. The first time is in Matthew 8. And at that time, they were afraid of dying. And so they have to wake Jesus up. Do you not care that we are perishing? Well, this time they see an image walking on the sea, and they're afraid of what that image might be. But yet both times they were with Jesus, or Jesus was nearby. Oh, may the Lord give his eyes to see what God is doing in the midst of the storms of our lives. But there's more here. Jesus knows that he came to fulfill all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the sacrifices and the symbols, the signs and the promises. And in the Old Testament, in many places, God is referred to as the ruler of the seas. I put a few passages here where it shows that God rules over them. We read one of the passages during our invocation time. Psalm 77 says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. There's an image of Yahweh, the I am, the God who is being the ruler of the seas. And that's what makes the response that Jesus gives here so amazing and exciting and encouraging. A text says, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And so Jesus is speaking to them in the midst of the storm. Now sometimes, as a relatively well-known song says, sometimes he calms the storm, and sometimes he calms the child. Here he's going to do both. He calms their hearts by saying, take heart. Take heart means be of good courage. Relax, all is well. The Lord has come. But it's the next phrase that I find so encouraging. Now, the, the ESV translates it as, it is I, but I have to say that that's a little short as a translation because this is a not-so-subtle claim to deity because in the Greek, the expression is ego eimi, I, I am. And that was the word or the phrase that God used in the Old Testament when he was speaking and speaking about himself to tell us what his name is. I am. It's how he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3. I am who I am. 
and all throughout the Old Testament where the expressions come up of Anahuahuhaon, the Hebrew, I am the one who is. It translates over into the Greek as ego eimi. Jesus uses a divine expression to introduce himself to the disciples in the midst of the storm. He's basically saying, in effect, take heart, I am. Therefore, we do not need to be afraid. As he says seven times in Matthew, the phrase comes up, do not be afraid. Now, you may say, can we really say that this is a claim to deity? But think about the context. He's standing on the water, walking in the midst of the storm, coming out to the middle of them in their lostness and their confusion. He's showing that he is the ruler of the seas. He can command nature, rise above and walk on nature, and then he uses a divine name. So we might title this sub-paragraph, maybe as a title of another sermon, Never Fear, I Am is Here. My friends, if you're in Christ this morning and you know him as your Lord and Savior, he is the I Am of your life, the living one, the true God who is able to help you and be with you and guide you and has authority over all things in your life. So fear not the storms of life because I am is here. A third major point then as we move on is come here, the challenge during the storm. In verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And we've gotten to know Peter enough to know that he is usually the one who speaks first. He's always listed first in the list of the apostles, perhaps seen as the first among equals. He's seen as the spokesman of the, of the apostles. He's fearful. He's weak. He's impetuous at times. But he's the one who responds. And this is something that Peter has never seen. None of the other men in the boat have ever seen this. This figure walking on the water in the midst of the waves and the storm, who claims to be the Lord. And so Peter says, if it is truly you, then call me out. There's a certain logic here. If, in fact, this is Jesus showing that he can walk on the water in the midst of the storms, that shows them he has the power to at least walk on the water. But he, if he says, I am, then he also is the one who can enable someone else to walk on the water. So Peter says, in effect, Without, without perfect understanding, because Peter continues to grow, as we all do in our understanding, basically says, Lord, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And the Lord gives the call, the command, come. Simple, straightforward, to the point. Somehow Peter recognizes that this is indeed Jesus Christ and receives the command that he is to come out to him. He has some understanding that unless this is the Lord, it will fall apart. Unless the Lord calls you, you cannot walk on water. But if he can, then go, for nothing can make you sink. He is able to uphold you. He is able to guide you. He is able to walk you through. So after we see the command, we see the compliance. So Peter, verse 29, got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, I don't know if there's an intentional play on words here, but it is fun to think about that Peter's name means rock. So either Jesus is going to keep his word, or Peter's going to sink to the bottom. But 
if we were to take it apart section by section, syllable by syllable in the Greek, it literally says that Peter got down out of the boat. Let's think about fishing boats in those days. They had high sides that would accommodate the men and the fishing tackle and the fish that they would catch, and they needed to have high sides because of the waves and because of the trauma that could happen on the seas. And so Peter would have to literally climb up the side of the boat to climb down onto the water. This is truly an act of obedient faith. I'm just amazed that he did it. He asked for it. He climbs up. He, you wonder at what point is he figuring out what's going on, but he climbs up the side of the boat, climbs down the side of the boat. The waves are still washing about. The mist is still flying. There's still white caps on the sea. And he starts to walk. It's better to get out on the water if the Lord commands you than to stay in the boat and judge how others have done it. So thirdly, we see the challenge. There is some failure on Peter's part. I think there's also some success on Peter's part, but I think there's something even greater underneath the whole thing. We'll get to that. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now it says that he walked out on the water and came to Jesus. That gives the impression that Jesus wasn't just right next to the boat. We don't know how far out on the water he was, away from the boat, but if he had to walk to him on the water, that means at least for a short season, he's walking on the top of the waves. But then, he started looking around. And I, I think we can all understand. The waves are several feet high, and the mist, and the, the white caps, and the wind, and all that. We would understand, he says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out. But when he began to sink, he turned, it was because he turned his attention away from the creator and towards the creation. And that's where we often get into trouble, isn't it? We make great promises and pledges and we have understandings about who God is and what he can do and his promises and how we'll move through the steps of life. And then as soon as we get in difficulties of life, we start looking around, how am I going to save myself? And we take our eyes off of the creator. We put them on the creation. Maybe there's a better example. I think we can all learn from Peter. I know I can learn from Peter. But maybe we can be like the man who brought his sick daughter to Jesus. And Jesus says, why did you not believe? And he cries out and he says, I, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And probably all of us find ourselves in that situation. Yes, we believe. Yes, we, we have a measure of understanding, but we need to grow more. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. But if Peter faltered in his faith, and he did, he also shows us an example of what we should do, and that is he cried out to the Lord. He didn't wait until he exhausted all human possibilities about how to save himself. He didn't take an inventory of what personal strategies for life-saving he could implement. He just cried out, Lord, save me. He knows that if this one can walk on the water, he can certainly save him from destruction. This is not a cry of salvation from sin. It's a cry of salvation from a dangerous situation. We remember that. We make notes. 
my first reaction should be, Lord, save me. Not, how can I save myself? Or how can I gather the resources and materials to do things in a way that makes me look good? But, Lord, save me. And look at the gracious response of the Lord. Immediately, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He reached out his hand. And think, Jesus is still standing on top of the water. The waves are still splashing around. The white caps and the rain and the mist are still going. And he lifts him up. He didn't say, oh, you of no faith. That's a different word. That's only used of unbelievers in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, oh, you of little faith. A person that had no faith wouldn't cry out to Christ. But Peter does. It's as if he's saying... Why did you doubt? You obeyed me. You got out of the boat. You were doing great. Why did you take your eyes off of me? He doesn't rebuke him for getting out of the boat. He only says, I was standing here the whole time. Why did you take your eyes off me? In the Phillips translation, it says, what made you lose your nerve? Notice that Jesus could have Saved him with a word. He's already showed us in the book of Matthew. He can just give the word and healing comes. He just gives the word and salvation is brought. He can just give the word and Peter would have just bobbed right back up to the surface. But no, he showed his tender touch. He not only showed his authority, he affirmed him, he grabbed him. He wants Peter to understand that he will be there as that sure hand that can deliver him in his trials. He wants Peter to grow in his faith in him. We sometimes get the idea that faith is this substance or this commodity that we just pack onto our belief system. No, faith is confidence. Faith is trust in a person. We have trust and confidence in Jesus Christ who saves us. Yes, we are saved by faith, by grace through faith, but it is in Christ. It's not our faith that just saves us because we have faith. It is faith in something or someone that saves us in Christ. But what I appreciate about Peter is he learns this, and he was willing to learn it because he gets out, he walks on the water, and now he experiences in a deeper way that Jesus is always with him in his trials. He learns it in a deeper way than those that didn't get out of the boat. And so I don't rebuke Peter because at least he got out of the boat. He listened to the command. He acted upon it. Yeah, he's got to grow in faith. But he trusted that Jesus could save him. And where were the other 11? I think Peter really helps us to understand what the gospel is all about, that it is all of Christ being clothed in his righteousness and what he has done, and that it is him who is leading us. And he says, follow me. And he is the one that is leading us to the shores of heaven. And all of us are imperfect. Peter was an imperfect leader, and yet at the same time was an example to follow. But let's not forget what is not said here, but which becomes clear. It's not just that Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. It is that Jesus kept his eyes on Peter. Did you hear that? Jesus kept his eyes on Peter. You're in the midst of life. The storms are thrashing you about. And you're struggling. And Jesus has his eye on you. And he's saying, just cry out. 
I'm able to help you. I'm able to bring you through. Peter is impulsive, he's brazen, he's proud, but he's passionate and he's devoted and has repent, he's repented. And every time he falls, he goes back to Jesus. And that's an example I can follow because I'm the same way. I get out over my skis, as we say in Minnesota. I make bad decisions. I get myself involved in sticky wickets. If I'd only been smarter or wiser or obeyed, and then rather than trying to save myself, I can just cry out to Jesus and run back to him who is the Savior. And then we're told they got into the boat. Now think about it. They're not right next to the boat. So I like to think they're having a little stroll back. The waves are still splashing. The wind's still blowing. The white caps are still showing. They walk back to the boat and they get in. And when they get in, the wind ceased. Jesus is showing us who he is. He's not only the one who walks on the water, who can stand on the water in the midst of the storm. He's the one who can fish his disciples out of their problems, who can walk them back to the ark of safety. He's the one who calms the storm. He's the I am. He's the ruler of the seas. And I love what Dr. Daniel Doriani says at this point as he challenges us to apply this passage. He's a theologian in the St. Louis area, and he says this. We have enough faith to know that all is well, all, that all will be well before all is well. We have enough faith to know that all will be well before all is well. Isn't that great? If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we know enough that all will be well before all is well. Our last point then is bow down to confession after the storm. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So they walk back to the boat, they get into the boat, the winds ceased. Jesus has power over nature, power over creation. It's surely implied that Jesus has the authority to stop nature. And so what did the disciples do? Well, this time they get it right. They worshipped him. These were Jewish men who knew that only God could be worshipped. And they worshipped him. And they're not rebuked for doing so. That shows us who Jesus truly is. He can do what only God can do. He's the ruler of the seas. He can cause us to walk on the waters. He can fish us out of our troubles. And he is worthy of our worship. And then they make a great confession of faith. Truly, you are the Son of God. Oh, they're still growing in their understanding. They're still growing in who Jesus is. And in recent stories, they have seen him as the bread of life who feeds the masses, who takes care of his own, who is the Messiah, the true man that has come down from heaven. Now they see him as the ruler of the seas who is worthy of worship. They're growing. They need to keep on growing, as we will see in the chapters to come. They have not yet arrived at full understanding. They're growing in their understanding little by little of who Jesus is, but they've not yet arrived at mature faith. And we're going to see that again several times, where they're growing, and yet there's a need to grow. But I'd like that example because I find myself in their place. I'm growing, but I still need to grow. And years from now, I'll be growing, 
but I still need to grow because perfection will only come when I meet him face to face. But I still want to be in that trajectory of growth until I meet him face to face. So like the disciples, we all are called to grow in our faith. Remember, Jesus says to the one who has, more will be given. If you're in Christ, walking obediently with him, confessing your sins, walking in harmony with his people, you will receive ongoing blessings. The one who has, even more he will receive. But our faith grows in a person of Christ, in the person of Christ. Be gone with this statement that the false teachers give, have faith in your faith. No. Have faith in Jesus, who alone is worthy of our faith. And the Lord deals with his people kindly because he wants to lead us to further growth and understanding. It is the plan of God that the people of God would become like the Son of God under the power of the Holy Spirit of God as taught by the Word of God. We all are to become more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Now next week we will finish up our time in Matthew 14 and do a summary of what we have seen about who Jesus is and the impact it can have on our lives today. But what are some lessons we can take away? Because Jesus is in control of our lives, even our trials, we will trust him with all that happens to us. Our God is not in the business of making mistakes. And so what happens under his providential care is he guides us sometimes even in the trials so that we will trust him. Thirdly, be, uh, secondly, because Jesus sees us in our trials and prays for, for us, we will also pray for strength and guidance and peace to face our trials. We seek the one who can actually do something about our trials because he's in control of those trials. Thirdly, because Jesus comes to us in our trials and brings us through them, we will not waver in unbelief, but trust him through them. He sees, he comes, he guides us through. And lastly, because Jesus gives us an opportunity to grow in our faith during trials, we will look to grow in and through them. Don't waste those opportunities. Use them as opportunities to turn to the Lord and say, would you help me in these situations? Would you guide me in these situations? Would you lead me through these situations? May I become more like Christ in these situations. As I said, next week we'll finish up Matthew 14. But this week, think about what it means in your life to never fear because I am is he. Let us pray. Father, as we thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you for the holiness of your son and we thank you for the power of your spirit, we are a needy people, but we are a blessed people. Thank you for the hope that we can have in Christ. Thank you that we can rest knowing that all that happens is under your sovereign control that will ultimately bring you glory and will bring us greater good that we become more like Jesus. But Father, sometimes we don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. So would you open our eyes and open our ears, and would you teach us? And for what you have shown us in your word this morning, Father, would you be speaking to our hearts throughout this week, that we would be quick not only to learn and to obey and to repent, but also to teach those around us what your word says and what it can mean in their lives. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.